Hey team, welcome to episode 65 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. In this episode of Transition Talk, we're going to talk about some of the hurdles or situations that buyers and sellers face when looking to transition. Now, these particular ones are situations we see that happen in the middle of a big growth phase of a practice or when life changes and a transition just has to happen earlier than maybe a seller planned. So we're going to walk through the three most common And I will tell you, most people think that these situations are unique to them, but they're not. We actually see them a ton, but we're going to discuss some real life solutions and see how they've played out and how buyers and sellers have kind of came to terms. But before we get going, Mr. Loretto, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Where people can't see us, but we're sitting across from each other. Finally, we've done a lot of remote recording, but we're actually sitting across the table, which is always a nice little mix it up. Oh yeah. I like our little pre-huddle. I'm excited about this. I thought it was funny that you're saying, Are you telling me that buyers and sellers, they have hurdles to these transitions? I know. I know. It's weird. After five or six hundred, you'd think that they would just figure it out. (laughs) Listening to this podcast, they could figure all this out. Are they still having hurdles? They do. You know, and it's actually funny. Sometimes I'm like, am I going to just see one that I've seen before? Yeah. Pretty much everyone has something a little bit different about it. I love it. Um, Now, mine's pretty simple. Mine's pretty um, far down the road. Is there a way you can do it for less? Nope. (laughs) Sure <laughs> Have you ever seen a crown that's kind of far down the road and just like, hey, I think I'll just do it. My teeth are not that crooked. Can you do it for less? <laughs> wow. Put that back on you, yes. Mr. Dennis, Mrs. Yes. Dennis. Yes. So before we dive into the real situations and solutions today, that's going to be hard for me. Let's talk about we deal with these every day as husbands, wives, friends, parents, talk to me. Yes. So the Loretto hurdle of the week is in the middle of the night, we can all relate. The smoke detector starts going off. And then I think they somehow they connect to each other and they're talking to each other. So (laughs) one turns into five. And at this point at the three o'clock, I'm literally ripping them out of the wall. Like, you know, they're plugged in with the battery. I'm taking them outside, put them in the garage. And so research. And then we got, I don't know, 13 of them in the house. And so I had to do the lithium battery and then and remove the the little plastic piece and drill in the new pieces and so I get them all to work and I'm so proud like I've done a chore around the house I'm not really good at a lot of things but uh you know I get it done and then the next day I hear beep beep I'm so frightened we can't figure it out so you got to go look at them you're standing underneath them trying to figure out where the beep beep's coming from well what happened was is I took 12 of them and we threw them in the trash but there was one extra one and <laughs> Roxanne had just put it in the regular trash like inside the house so that little sucker was still going off <laughs> And of course, this is the next night, back-to-back nights. Now it's midnight. And um, let's just say I'm still happily married, but there was a chance that (laughs) that we were going to need some counseling earlier this week. But hurdles. Hurdles. We have to overcome them. Hurdles, yes. We've had, um, and I think this is literally something, there's no, there's real no solution to this. This actually probably is not applicable, but just the scheduling of like children and pickups. And I think there was a moment in time when I thought when my kids were young, that like if they just got older, things would become easier 
And it just turns out that's absolutely not true. Like you're not saving them from killing themselves every day, which is great. But then you're worrying about like pickups and drop-offs and appointments and parent-teacher. And then then it's Red Ribbon Week next week in two different schools and two different themes and one kid who doesn't like themes but wants to take part in the themes. So yeah, so we don't have a lot of solutions in our home, but we've started reutilizing Google calendars because we've had one too many mishaps with the whole like who, which parent is picking up. So we've restarted using those and making sure we have alarms and making sure we're like texting each other to make sure we, you know, communicated properly that morning. So how about this? Do you remember when, when, when your child is always asking you in carpool, why aren't you first? Shoot me for, shoot me for the stay home parent that gets to be first in line. I always joke about it now because I was always last in line coming about 80 miles an hour pulling up at 315 if it was at 245 pickup so I can take the kid home and actually still do some work. Yep, yep, yep. We actually had that conversation last week. So yes, first in carpool is not going to be Christy yeah, Radcliffe. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, we'll, Hurdles, girlfriend. We got to get over them. therapy later. Yes. Um, yes. So let's get down to business. So right. we have three of these and I'm going to set it up and then I want to hear your kind of solution. So like I mentioned earlier, these are not your typical transition where it's old gal or guy looking to transition by a hundred percent, we might have some transition issues. These are more like I am in the middle, did not anticipate really having to transition at this time, but for whatever reason we're doing it. And so how do I make this fair for kind of all of us? So in situation one, I'm a seller. I've got a practice, an established practice, does about 1.4 million. And because of growth and space and the situation, I built a second location, kind of a startup from the ground up, right? So I've invested building, finish out, let's just call it, you know, eight, 900,000, right? So more than your average startup, which is, which is typical in these like second location kind of finish outs. And now I've got a buyer who's coming in. Maybe it's my associate, maybe it's outside buyer and they're wanting to buy in. And the question that we get is, okay, how do I value this thing that they're going to be buying into? Because I have just personally gone in and did a build out and I've built it from the ground up and I have blood, sweat and tears in this new startup. It's not really fair that the buyer just gets to come in and because it hasn't really lived into its potential, they're just getting kind of buy this $1.4 million practice that I've kind of established. So how do we do that and how do we account for the investment but not kind of make that buyer pay for that future opportunity that they're going to kind of be there to see come to fruition. First of all, it is a massive hurdle. And typically this is a situation where they were not prepared for that person to walk in the door. So just play with numbers. You know, I'm a numbers person. The $1.4 million business, let's just say for simplicity is worth 1.1. And then this seller says, wow, I'm kind of tapped out of this area. I'm going to go do something else at this other location. And now again, it could be a lease project that may be 500,000, 550, 600, or it could be a building project that they bought maybe inexpensively, but finished out and they've got an eight, $900,000, like you said in your example. And so when you look at the value of that second quote unquote startup, it's really hard to measure because especially if it's brand new and there's literally no patience, it's just the assets. And so the buyer is basically looking at this going, well, 1.1 million is my value. The practice hasn't started over there. And if I bought half of that, and let's just say it's another 400,000 because it was an $800,000 number, would I pay 1.5 or in this case, I'm sorry, 800 plus 11 would be 1.9. Would I pay $1.9 million value on the 1.4? And the answer is, I don't know. I mean, if you 
can see the opportunity in that practice and you can we know that we had to go build that space for chairs and for growth and the first location was limited, then absolutely, I think you have to strongly consider. You've got to really look into those numbers, look at the marketing, you got to see that whole story. So again, don't just run away from it. We just need to hear the story. It could be an example too, where the practice has just maybe only been there for let's say a year. Mm -hmm. We've got a little production run on that. We've got a little, could be a a ortho practice where you've got maybe six to 700 already in ortho production. Collections haven't, you know, crept up yet. Maybe you've got a GP practice where it's, it's already starting to get 50, 60 new patients a month in that first year. Then you have to see that as an investment and you got to be willing to quote unquote pay for that investment. So there are times that we absolutely will say, pull the trigger and to go ahead and do that. Yep. And I think there's kind of two kind of realms here, right? It's either if it's new, if that new second location is is truly like maybe just finished and we don't have any of that history, it can be, hey, I'm going to pay the value of what the practice is, that original kind of 1.4 practice, whatever that value is at, plus half the debt that's been spent on kind of that building, especially if you're going to be buying into the buildings and the real estate, right? That's easy. The challenge comes to when you kind of do have a little bit of runway, it can make a clearer picture, but it can also maybe make it muddy because maybe you're two or three years out. So seller, you still got some debt you're paying off. Buyer, you're like, well, I don't want to take on the debt because I've now it has some runway and I can see it. But so you've got to kind of have to, like Charles said, you got to look at the whole picture and say, what is this opportunity? And as a seller, sellers, you have to realize that what a buyer is going to be able to go to a lender and get might be limited, right? Because a lender has a box that they have to be in and they have to kind of look at what's existed. And so maybe you have to be a little bit more flexible and kind of maybe how it's financed or what it looks like. I mean, there's always the option to wait. Right. And we'll talk about that again here in a second in our situation, too. There's always the option to just wait and see what happens. We think that's probably maybe a more short sighted situation, especially if the practice looks promising and new patients are coming and production and collections are there. But in some situations, maybe maybe it is riskier and maybe that's the right move for both of you is just to wait and see kind of how it plays out and and make sure it makes sense for both of you. Two comments there. Number one is banking will be a challenge here. Okay, so that's going to be number one to be thinking about. Number two is let me try to give you an example where let's just assume young buyer. You're purchasing a 400000 collection practice, and you're going to purchase it for 300000 It's a very small practice. It's always going to be this kind of three-chair, four-chair thing, outdated equipment, outdated, outdated everything. Okay, so we paid three hundred for something that's four hundred. Within that first year, you recognize that there's a lot of upgrades and changes. So you change out x-ray, you change out chairs, you change out flooring, and now you've put in $300,000 within that first one to two years. What's really the difference? You literally, in this example, have spent $600,000 for something that was doing 400. So you had to make that investment for the growth. Okay, it's the same concept when something is is brand new that you're looking at maybe on a partnership and, and this you know kind of first example that this person has built. You kind of came in a little early, maybe a little bit wasn't expected. So we built the thing to happen. Okay, so all I'll just say is let's just be open-minded about it and know there's going to have to be some flexibility both on buyers and seller, uh, and especially knowing we're probably going to have some banking issues on that situation. Yep, absolutely. Now, situation two is a little bit similar, 
but it's when a seller has essentially has a space, they've built a new building and finished out within the last one or two years. New buyer wants to buy the building, but seller hasn't seen a return in that, right? So there's either been a new building or a complete renovation. It's kind of one space. We're not talking so much about a new practice startup, but more the actual space, right? And the buyer's buying into the practice, but there's kind of been this investment that the seller has made that they probably made the decision a couple of years ago to say, hey, I'm going to make this investment because I'm going to be able to see this return over a period of time. I don't want to just sell the building yet. Like I need to get some return out of it first. And so how does the buyer get comfortable with that? And then what kind of can the seller do to kind of feel like he's giving to the buyer as well versus kind of just saying, hey, you can't buy into the building, you got to pay me a lease. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So on that situation, so we just expanded. In this case, we went from like a, the guy maybe owns the building, but we're going to renovate the building and make it much nicer. And so went from like a, a four to five op to call it a 10 op type practice. And maybe the seller was really smart of how purchase maybe some of the equipment. And so maybe it's not necessarily the equipment was so expensive. It was maybe just the finish out. And so one of the ways, and from a building standpoint, if when the buyer's coming in, one of the ways to kind of balance that out that's fair between both buyer and seller is just for the seller to establish that there's going to be a lease in place in the buy-in. So that way the seller gets to recoup some of their time and their investment with you know, going in before and after hours with building this building. And so we can at least let the seller recuperate some of the monies just from the lease between the two parties. But again, kind of goes back to that first example is we had to expand and we had to make the investment on even some of that equipment. So even now when the value comes in, if you look at this, maybe half the debt of the equipment, and then you look at the value of the practice, you may pay a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But again, back to number one, number two are so similar is you are investing in a stock that may be a little bit overpriced, but you have the insight intel to know that is just about ready to explode. And so you can either do one or two things. You can jump in now or you can jump in later. And when you jump in later, you're missing out on the five reasons you own a business, income, tax planning, pension planning, and and being in control, and obviously being able to recognize the equity that goes up in the stock. Because you you hang around too long, this seller's like, you know, well, hey, I gave you a chance to buy it before, but you know, now I'm changing my mind. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I had to give you a chance before, but mm, maybe I just want to sell to private equity because this is now a $2 million machine. And I can't help it that you uh, second guessed this idea two or three years ago, but now we're running a $2 million machine. I'm not going to give you that price was it was before. So you've got to know there's some risk there and you've got at some point be able to overcome that risk and become an owner in this thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the valuation world, when we, we see this a lot with partnerships, right, we'll see historical numbers are pretty stable and then they have a renovation, they add a couple of ops, they kind of redo their building space and then kind of the practice kind of starts to grow. And what we do a lot in the valuation world is we'll say, well, we're going to value it right before you did made that investment and then we're going to add that equipment that you added, right? Add your investment on top of the valuation so that that seller kind of doesn't lose out on the fact that there was this investment made that really hasn't been able to kind of prove out in profitability in the future. And I think for a seller, if it's a building cost, right? As an owner of both a building and practice, especially if you're a 100% owner, 
those two things are probably melded in your mind, right? Like I've just spent a bunch of money on the practice and building and it's not like kind of bifurcated into the two assets that it is. Keep in mind that if you've just invested in your building, right? Like the actual building, you have an asset, right? That you are not selling and that is probably higher in value than it was prior to you making that investment. And so the way to get that money back is through lease, right? Not that you're overcharging someone, but from a comparable lease standpoint, your lease space is finished out nicer than a comparable space. So you should get a premium rent for it, right? And the comps have to exist and we still want it to be fair and we still want it to be market, but that's kind of how you make your money back on investments in your building. And I think as a buyer, if I have to lease my space for a period of time, I'm okay with that, right? I'm buying 100% of a building, a buyer wants to hold on to it or a seller wants to hold on to their building for a bit, that's fine. Let's have a right of first refusal. Let's have an option to maybe buy it in five years or 10 years or whatever kind of that time period is that 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 seller wants to hold on to it. As long as you're paying fair market value, it's okay. There are a lot of people who never own their buildings and are very successful. And so, you know, is it, do we want you to own it if you can? Sure. But if you can't, it's not, in our opinion, it's not a reason to walk away from a successful practice just because you can't buy the building. So I just think that's important to kind of talk about as well. Awesome. I'm with you. And just a lot of times these sellers will take out a loan and it could be all in one loan. So you're just simply pulling out the equipment out of maybe that financed amount. So if it was 800,000 and 200 of equipment, then it was just that equipment. That's the dollar amount that we will add to the quote unquote agreed upon valuation. Yep. The other 600,000, the finish out and all the other things, that's truly, you would recoup that, those types of investments uh, in the lease, as you said. Yep. So those two are probably partnership or kind of recent investment, someone selling kind of in the middle of a growth phase or kind of a reinvestment in the practice. This third situation is more about probably a hundred percent sale and more so that the seller is selling because they want to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, as a buyer, I'm coming in and maybe that something else feels risky, right? They're doing something else. That's not just riding off into the sunset and, and kind of retiring. So I want to talk about a, some of those real life kind of something else's that we've encountered and kind of how buyer and sellers have done that. So I'm going to start, I'm not going to go in the order we talked about, but um, I'm going to start. We had a practice that was in a very, very urban area, right? So one of those urban areas where a two or three mile, five mile non-compete is really all you need. People don't travel far to go to another dentist. And this particular seller had a practice that she had bought 100% of probably, I don't know, five years ago, let's call it. And it was all PPO, not any fee for service. And after owning that practice for a period of time, she kind of realized like, I kind of want to do another type of dentistry. I want to have another type of practice. This practice was profitable. It was good. She just kind of sell herself somewhere else long-term. So she purchased a 100% fee for service practice a few miles down the road, kind of within a non-compete distance. That's hard, right? That is, from a buyer standpoint, from a bank standpoint, a lot of red flags. Like, how do we know patients aren't going to follow? How do we know we're not going to try to get patients? And no matter how much we could basically say these two practices are so different, the patients that are going to practice A are not going to be patients of practice B. That's just not the right dynamic we couldn't kind of find a solution to what that did or how to fix that. So where did that end up and kind of what did we ultimately kind of tell that client to do to kind of solve that? So I love it because people that we've worked with will listen to the podcast and they're like, 
I'm pretty sure you were talking about me. <laughs> I heard it too, like even in lecture, I was like, were you talking about me? Were you looking at me in the audience and you're giving my example? Because it does sound very familiar. So no, it was extremely complicated, but this was too good to pass up of an opportunity. Um, I mean, this was, I'm talking, you know, $700 crowns to $2,500 crowns to, you know, $140 cleanings to $500 cleanings. So I mean, it was too good of a deal to pass up. And so what we end up doing is we end up holding both. And then the bank and the buyer just needed more time in the practice to basically say, look, I have been over here for now one to two years. This practice is where it's stable. And this practice that I just left, nobody has come over. I can show you patient records if you need to. They are not coming over here. Why would you pay three to four times the amount to go you know, down the street? It's a PPO practice. The loyalty is going to be typically... Yes, with the dentist, but you know, there's going to be a, a fee component. So ultimately, we ended up having where that owner kept two practices until enough time had passed. So now two years go by. Now the bank and the future buyer feels more comfortable with it. So it wasn't an immediate solution, but that opportunity to purchase that fee-for-service practice with that overhead and that cash... Honestly, I was like, we've mitigated so much risk. Worst case scenario, this practice does go down a little bit. It's okay because you're literally printing that much money at that fee-for-service practice. So and it's funny that you say that they will identify themselves because I'm thinking of another practice. It's the exact same situation. So I guess it's that rule of like, you're not that special. Yeah. Um, but there was another one, the same situation where, where there was a concern that patients were going to follow. And the seller actually said, I'm, I'm a little concerned about that too. Like yeah. I kind of have a unique angle in this community and I am worried that maybe some people will follow us. And so we just said, hey, that's okay. Well, then let's just transition the patients that you know will follow you and hold on to it and have an associate and make sure that you're not allowing patients to kind of come to both locations. Like it's you're this or that. And if you can prove that out after a couple of years, then we can have more data to say, hey, I know it seems, but look, this has been a stable number of patients. There's no crossover. We can have a no-treat clause in our non-compete. Like We can do yep. all of those things that make us feel better and make the buyer and lender feel more safe. That sounds so, so freaking complicated. I know. It is a little bit. But that's <laughs> why don't they ever live. come to us with easy I, transitions, I, Christy? I, I, why, why do we have to deal with this? I don't know. Because no know. one else does? And they're yeah. like, let NDP figure it out. Yeah, let's, let's let NDP <laughs> figure that out. Okay, second one. This was a client that was looking... Looking to transition, it's really hard to do this without saying like locations. I know, and names. I know, I know. So we have a client looking to transition 100% of the practice, wasn't quite ready to be done, kind of saw themselves having three to five more years left of clinically practicing, but kind of came across a buyer who was just the right fit and kind of fit the mold. And so chose to say, okay, rather than doing a partnership or any kind of staggered sale, I'm just going to sell 100% yep. and commit that I can work back for a couple years and I'll make it work. But also then, because of our discussions, knowing that the buyer is now in control. The buyer has ownership of the practice, and if the buyer at one point wakes up and says, seller, I don't want you here anymore, the seller was like, I need to protect myself to be able to kind of work, right? because that's important to me. So again, kind of an urban area up in the northeast, 
And essentially, and I can, I'll, I'll say the states because there's no other way to explain this, but essentially the non-compete kind of spanned uh, New Jersey and, and New York, right? And so basically said, hey, I want the ability to work in Manhattan, mm-hmm. right? Even though it might be mileage wise within the distance we're talking about, none of my patients are coming to Manhattan, right? right? If, if they're in a suburb. And so um, I want that ability. So we kind of did a little carve out and buyer and seller have a good relationship. So there's a lot of good communication. Seller agreed to kind of a no treat and no solicit. And so there wouldn't sure. be kind of that risk and, and it worked. So I think there's just kind of an acknowledgement and all of these of just communication, both seller and buyer understanding the like limitations and the roadblocks and the hurdle they're trying to fix and kind of saying, okay, well, how do I solve this? How do I be reasonable about it? So yeah, the bottom line is he was going to live there. Right. Yeah. And they'll definitely will transition to this next example. But the bottom line is the seller said, hey, this is where I'm going to live. Yep. I want at least three years where I get to make an income. And let's just call it income 150000 But my risk is if I do this deal, I give up everything and this non-compete, I'm not going to be protected. Yeah. So I need three years of income. I either work at this practice or I need three years I get to work over here. Mm-hmm. And so it's just that simple to be able to like get them on the phone and get them on the same page and to get them to understand that. Uh, another example, which is a great one, all these involve women. I know. And, and they all worked out because they're all flexible. I and they're so flexible. They are. So this other one was in the southern part of the U.S. And she worked in this practice, but she built this home in a separate community. And this community now is kind of the up-and-coming area, you know, a lot of moms, same age, you know, kids. This is where the soccer team is. This is where the church is. This is where the husband works. But this commute was like 25 miles. And now with traffic and it's 30, 40 miles and she doesn't have the flexibility to come. So what we did is we sold the practice and committed to that to the buyer. But it was we allowed her to do this startup and this project. She's like, I'm not doing that until I get my startup off the ground. So we slowly phased her out of this practice that was 25 miles away and then got her up and going in the startup till she phased out. Mm -hmm. And then that's how we phased out the transition. So it's just very, very unique that you would allow somebody to do some of these things. But the reality is that I want the sellers and the buyers to know from this is patients are ridiculously loyal to the practice. I know it can hurt Mm -hmm. your feelings that they are loyal to the actual practice. I've said this over and over again. They are loyal to the practice. They don't just, oh, Johnny went 20 miles down the street. They're all going to come follow Johnny. That's just not how I've seen this work out in my, you know, 20 plus years of doing this. So that's certainly something that I think that from a risk standpoint that we try to educate everybody on and and to kind of ease their emotions about this process. Yeah. And just figure out how to make it work. Right. I mean, it seems like an unsolvable problem. Like I want to do this other thing, but I'm in the middle of this thing and I don't want to do that until I'm done with this. But how do I make those two things work and who's going to be the person? And so sometimes it's just kind of a third party kind of coming in and being able to say, okay, wait, wait, like. What if this, right? Right. Does this work? And kind of figuring out how to make it, how to make it all flow. Well, I think one of the greatest things we bring to the table is just these out-of-box ideas. Like, this is still going to work. There's so many times I've seen deals like this that people are just like, I'm out. He wants to start a practice or she wants to start a practice or she wants this or the non-compete. There's Mm -hmm. just no way. I'm like, but wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Wait a minute. The business makes a million dollars. The business makes $500,000. Like, 
we can solve a lot of problems. Okay? <laughs> Let's get around this hurdle. Let's get over it. You know? The last one is interesting because I think we do that, but then I also think kind of like this is the prime example of kind of showing the other side and kind of just like being the middle person that says, okay, but think about it this way. Like think about how this would come across. So got a couple of clients. One was 100% owner, one was kind of a long-term associate, finally kind of buying in, had you know taken a long time to make that decision personally, not because it wasn't right. offered up earlier, just right. like life events. And the current seller basically, you know, it was kind of a suburb, it was a city, but it was kind of one of those things where, you know, kind of a name and people do travel to kind of come into the city to kind of see this practice. And the seller said, great, like, yeah, I want, you know, want you to buy in, but I also want to have this other location that I want to focus in on, kind of do a startup. And the buyer kind of was like, I want to be supportive of that. But at the same time, I'm buying into this thing and I'm buying into a partnership and I I don't, I need you. And I don't, you know, I'm buying into this thing that's at this level. And if we start you know, shifting our time elsewhere. Like, what does that look like? And I'm not, I'm a little risk averse. So I don't know if I want to buy into that thing right now, maybe later, but not right now. And what if patients leave, right? So there's all these what ifs, right? And that's any buyer under the sun who's about to take out any loan amount, whether it's six digits or seven digits, like it is a lot, you know, even five digits, like Mm -hmm. it's a lot of money. And so basically said, like, I don't know if I want to do this, if that's what's going to happen. And I don't want to be the person who's holding, you know, the seller back from doing that, like, because they had a good relationship. And so it was really kind of a conversation. There was a lot of like, one conversation, another conversation, then I come back and let's talk of that. Um, (laughs) Essentially, what we kind of came to is like, hey, seller, like, let's put the shoe on the other foot, right? This is kind of the concern. And this is why. And I think it's a valid concern. And it was kind of like a, ugh. Okay, well, you know, and what we ultimately came to is like, what if we just put that plan on hold for a certain number of years so that we can be sure that like the practice and the debt service and all these things are achievable and give that comfort to the buyer? Because what we know, right, and you and I know, is that once a buyer is in the position of ownership and understands that the cash flows work and the debt works and like that they're there, they become able to see kind of the bigger picture of like, well, maybe I do want to buy into like another location or expand or whatever. But it's hard to see that when you've been associate and everything you have comes in your bank account twice a month. And how am I going to take on this debt? And what's that going to look like? So even though we show the numbers, it can be hard until you kind of get in the groove of doing that for a couple of years and being an owner. So it was, it was a lot of talking, but it goes back to the loyalty of the patient. Yeah. I'm telling you, the patients are loyal at practice. In this case, she was nervous that maybe these patients might go over there or this, you know, he's going to lose focus and it's still going to be there. And if that was the case and another associate comes in, you know, to that practice to, to support it. The other thing I want to make a comment is um, remembering that story is she binged the podcast, this buyer, and she also listened to Why You Must Own Speech. Yes. And she was like, I wish I would have heard this before. You know, <laughs> she was so cute. Which boy, once she got the fire in her belly to own, yep. it was game time. It was game over. She was ready to buy. And she's happy. And it's going to be a great partnership. They truly do respect each other. You could hear it on our conference calls that we've had with them, that they just the kind of love and admiration for each other. Yep. And it, that's it's always fun to see. It's always fun to see. And I, I mean, I think what is important, and it's a situation in a way, kind of the last one I want to talk about, which is not on our list, but the situation of making sure that we all understand, and as a seller, you understand that from a buyer's standpoint, this is a huge 
emotional, personal, professional, the oh, yeah. debt, like there's all of these emotions that are going on. And I think kind of both parties being able to kind of like stop, let's take the emotion out of it. Let's think about this objectively. Let's listen to whoever's helping us, us hopefully, and kind of walk through what the other party might be feeling. Cause sometimes we just create these stories in our head that like in this example, he's trying to sell me half and cash out and right. and move and take all the patients. That's like not it at all. Do you know what I mean? And right. once we had that conversation, he was like, oh yeah, I can see how that might, oh yeah. my goodness, that's not what I'm doing yeah. at all. But yeah. you know. I love just, her. Why would I do that yeah, to her? That's just not where, where human nature makes us go. And yeah. so I think that's really important to kind of, that's the biggest solution is like the communication and the relationship and the like really kind of understanding and not kind of creating this story in our heads as we walk through this, like what is a transactional thing, but which is like very far from a transaction. So, okay, well that's, that's all I got today. That was, I feel like those three good ones. Definitely. Um, Hopefully these help at least understand kind of some of the hurdles you might see, especially if you're looking for a practice or maybe you're a seller in the middle of an expansion and thinking about bringing on an associate or bringing on a, an owner. There's not one way to transition. Some are more complex than others. And some seem to have roadblocks that we feel like we just cannot get around. But the goal is always thinking about things from a solution-based focus thinking about the facts. How do I remain fair and reasonable? What do I want? Especially in those partnership situations, you're bringing someone on. So bringing them on in the right way so you guys can work well together and and maybe thinking about that deal of, of what happens if that shoe is on the other foot. So that's all we've got for today. Thank you so much for your time, for your loyalty, for listening. Episode 65. Next episode, we're going to cover an important topic that we see, which causes major roadblocks and has been a much requested topic. And that's the cost sharing transition so suit up can't wait can't wait so (laughs) listen in and make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet subscribe to transition talk wherever you listen to your podcast until next time friends awesome thank you